I want you to turn to two places in Scripture. First, the Psalms, Psalm 32, and then over to the book of Romans, chapter 4. Psalm 32, we'll read the whole psalm, and then Romans 4, just the first eight verses. Psalm 32. Listen, this is God's Word. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach you. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And now Romans chapter 4, the first eight verses. Romans 4, 1, that what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Many of us will remember being or maybe having a young child and we or they covered their eyes with their hands and said, with all the authority a three or four year old child can muster, you can't see me. One child development scholar describes this as the quote, adorable but illogical behavior that is nearly universally shared among children. 
that by closing their eyes or by hiding behind their hand, they render themselves invisible. And we smile or maybe even chuckle when we remember those days of maybe doing that ourselves or watching our children do it and imagining that somehow because they put their hand in front of their eyes, you couldn't see them. And we think it's so naively endearing. I'm told children grow out of that phase roughly around the age of four. And at some point, they realize, along with all the rest of us, that it's simply not true. But isn't this the kind of thing Adam and Eve tried to pull off in the garden when they hid from God after they sinned? Isn't it the kind of thing we all do following their example, even as adults? Because when we sin against God, our consciences speak to us and we recognize that what we have done somehow places a barrier between us and God that not only disrupts our relationship with Him, but also creates in ourselves, for ourselves, a kind of liability, a liability to God's wrath and His judgment because we have violated His law, because we have marred that relationship. And so we recognize our sin stands between us and God. It, it obscures in some way uh, that right relationship. And what's more, we understand that that sin is present in a way God sees it. And God demands satisfaction of his justice for it. And so we try to hide. We try to hide ourselves. We try to cover up our sin. And sometimes we even try to pay the price for our sin. We try to compensate for it. Well, if you're visiting with us today, we are still asking these kinds of questions. What do we believe or what do we mean when we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins? Or to put it maybe another way, we are asking it this way. What does God do with our sin? What does forgiveness all entail? What are some of the biblical pictures and images God himself provides for us so that we can have a fuller understanding of what he does as he forgives our sin? And the lesson from Psalm 32.1 is that God covers our sin. And David describes himself in Psalm 32.1 that, that he has gone through this longish period, of kind of a pitiful period of personal torment. It's a time when he, uh, he not only failed to acknowledge his sins before God, but notice what he does. He, he actively tried to cover it up. David was the three-year-old child with his hand over his eyes and saying to the Lord, you can't see me. But here, David uh, recognizes, in, in, in retrospect, notice this is in the past, it was especially during these times when he was trying to cover up his sins to block them from the sight of the Lord, it was then he was most miserable. But then notice, of course, there's this moment of transition. It's key to understanding everything we've been saying about God's forgiveness, about receiving, embracing, enjoying, 
living in the joy of the forgiveness God gives us. The transition in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. The sin was always present. God knew it. It was only David who was trying to cover it or who imagined somehow that God couldn't see him. And then David said, that's enough. Let me lay that bare. I did not cover it. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In other words, David went from covering his sin and living in misery to confessing it and to receiving and experiencing and enjoying the happiness and the blessedness of knowing God had covered his sin. Blessed is the one, he says, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. David made that transition from covering it himself to having God cover it for him based on his uncovering, that is, David's uncovering, his confession. So I want you to come with me as we explore this image of God covering our sin. And we'll look at this with a set of three kinds of questions. What does it mean? What does God mean uh, when he says he covers our sin? What else is involved in this? And then we'll ask the same question we've been asking every week. How does this affect our lives? How do we live then if, if God really does cover our sin? Well, first then, what does God mean when he says he covers our sin? It's a simple enough word. I think you'll all understand this. It's the notion of covering. We place something on top of something else, and we do that to sometimes protect it, sometimes conceal it. So we cover uh, dirty walls with a fresh, clean, new coat of paint. Or we cover shabby-looking floors with sparkling new flooring. Or we cover cracks and holes in the parking lot with a fresh layer of asphalt, maybe someday. We'll come back to the Bible for a moment and, and remember, for example, the, during the days of Noah, the Lord covered the earth with His waters of judgment. Covering, simple enough for us to understand. And we're especially interested in covering as concealment. Because even before we confess our sin to God, we've done our level best to cover them up from the sight of others. Our sin is always there. It's just got this paper veneer or something over it. And yet it's still visible to God, and it's still offensive to Him, and it still invites from Him a response of wrath and judgment. Because it creates in us this liability to God's wrath. And if our consciences are not completely hardened to our sin, and that can happen, ordinarily any kind of reflection on it puts us in the kind of position David was in in Psalm 32, that is, we're miserable. We're filled with a, a sense of dread, foreboding, always waiting for that knock on the door or that call over the intercom to go to the principal's office after your teacher 
discovered you cheated on a quiz. A fact you had, until that point, you thought, successfully covered up. But here's what God tells us He does when we no longer cover up our sin, when we confess our sin to Him. He covers it. And He covers it infinitely more effectively than we ever could. He covers it in a way only He is able, in a way we are never able to do. He conceals our sin. He hides it from his view. In Psalm 32, David makes reference to his useless attempts at trying to conceal his sin. And he then expresses his confidence in how God's effective covering of it takes place following his confession, following his opening up to the Lord. Now, notice David doesn't tell us much here about how God accomplishes it. You you won't find that too much in the psalm other than to recognize David speaking about something that's much greater, that does get fleshed out in the Bible from beginning to end. I would suggest that David has, especially in view here, without saying quite so many words, but the Day of Atonement. And here you need to uh, recall the architecture and the furniture in the temple or in the tabernacle. Remember, behind the veil in the most holy place is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant are those two cherubim. There's a lid on the Ark of the Covenant, sometimes called the mercy seat. Also, you could say, it's the cover. The cover of the ark is covering what? Among other things, a copy of the Ten Commandments. The very thing God's people broke, the very thing that shaped and so defined the relationship they were to have with God. And God says, I'm going to live among you, behind the veil, between the cherubim, on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Some of our English Bibles call that cover the mercy seat it's the place of covering and here's a big word alert for you but this will help you understand some other places in the bible it is the place of propitiation once a year on the day of atonement the high priest enters into the holy place goes through the veil into the most holy place there's incense involved but among other things He sprinkles blood on the lid of the ark. And sprinkling of blood on the cover or the lid of the ark symbolizes the covering of the sins of God's people in the sight of God. It covers over the ark with the Ten Commandments that have been broken, and and it's between those commandments and between them and God. And of course, that act of sprinkling blood on the cover is, of course, symbolizing something far greater. It it takes place when we confess our sins in Jesus' name, when the Father applies the blood of Christ shed on the cross and covering our sin. So what does God do with our sin? He casts it into the depths of the sea. 
He washes them from us. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more, and He covers them. Well, what else is going on here? Or what more is taking place? We move from Psalm 32 to Romans chapter 4, and notice how Paul interprets Psalm 32, or how he fleshes that out again. He applies Psalm 32 in a new covenant context. That is, we are now God's people in these new and fresh ways because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and because of the work of the Spirit in our lives uniting us to Him. Paul had been speaking up to Romans 4 of how Abraham was justified. How was Abraham made right with God? Well, it was not by his works, but because he believed in God and his promises. By faith, he believed God and the promises God made to him. And by way of contrast, Paul writes, when we work for someone, when you're an employee, you are owed wages. Your wages are not a gift, as much as your boss might try to give you that impression. They're not a gift, but they are an obligation your employer has to you. And Paul's saying, on the flip side, when we do not work for our salvation, but when it's given to us by God through Christ, when we believe in Christ alone, when we trust in Him, our faith is credited to us as righteousness. And then notice what Paul says in verse 6 of Romans 4. He recalls the words of David in Psalm 32, and he says David was saying the same thing. David was saying exactly the same thing when he said, Blessed is the person whose sins are covered. Because the person whose sins are covered is also the person to whom the Lord credits righteousness. You see, David had, had said merely that God covers our sins, and now Paul claims that what David was really saying is that the covering of sins is never alone, but it's always accompanied by a corresponding covering in righteousness. To have our sins covered is an amazing thing, but it's not enough, and thank God it's not all we get. God doesn't simply restore us to a baseline position of sinlessness in His sight. But He sees us as positively righteous because He places us in Jesus and He clothes us or covers us in the righteousness of Christ. And it is that dual act that enables us to be reinstated into that right relationship with God. Notice it's all on God's side of things. It's God's initiative. It's God's love for us. It's God sending His Son. It's His Son going to the cross. And it's that applied to us by the faith God Himself gives to us. That we reach out to Christ. God covers our sin. And He covers us with the righteousness of Jesus. It's even richer than that, though, you might notice what Paul says one chapter earlier in Romans chapter 3. 
Romans chapter 3, 23 to 25, pretty uh, well-known verse, I think, for most of you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, he goes on, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The word propitiation there, as elsewhere, could just as easily have been translated as the place where our sins are covered. In other words, God is saying, Paul is saying, God sent His Son as the mercy seat, as the covering. The word could just as easily be translated as the place as much as the act of covering. I realize that's a bit challenging for us to think about. Let me try an illustration. If I'm leaving the house on Tuesday morning and Diana says to me, where are you going? I would probably say to her, I'm on my way to church. And she would understand that to mean I'm coming to 151 West County Line Road and I'm probably going to be in my office and I'm going to do some work there. I might meet with someone or whatever. But I would say I'm going to a place. Ask the same question of me at 9.05 or 9.10 Sunday morning. Where are you going? And I'll probably say, I'm going to worship. I'm going to the exact same place. But I'm describing to you what I'm doing in one or two words, what I'm going to do there. The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, is a place. Something happens there. Jesus is both. Paul says God sent him to be the propitiation, we think, the sacrifice or the shedding of blood. Yes, but he's also, and it could just as easily be, he is the mercy seat. God made Jesus Christ to be the mercy seat or the covering so we can be present with him. So our sins can be covered with the blood of Christ. And God covers our sins because His wrath due to us for our sins is satisfied in the sacrifice, the shedding of blood of His Son, who becomes both the place and the propitiating act, that which satisfies God's wrath forms and, or fuels rather and demonstrates His great love for us, all for us and for our salvation, and for His great glory. So then the next obvious question is, well, if that's all true, how does that affect our lives? How then shall we live if God has covered our sin and covered us in the righteousness of Christ? Well, our news headlines confirm the old adage, the cover-up is worse than the crime. We know what a cover-up is. And we're often more interested in the cover-up than in the actual details of the crime. We're, we, uh, we're drawn in by the stories. We're intrigued by the depth to which people will go to hide their sins or their indiscretions from view. We want to know motives, how much money was involved, who was involved in it, who knew what and when. I suspect part of our fascination 
with cover-ups. Is that we see just a bit of ourselves in those stories. Let me invite you to think in two, two different directions as we think about God covering up your sin. On the one hand, you could ask yourself this. Why would you want to be in that position David is in when he describes his misery in Psalm 32? Why would you want to persist in, an, in a state of ongoing impenitence, not wanting to lay your sins before God or to repent of them to Him? You see, it's, it says something of the perversity and the pervasiveness of sin in us that we would still think that just because others are not aware of our sin or just because we can put our hand in front of our eyes, God doesn't see us. So one, in one direction, you, you want to be thinking about how you don't want to live in that kind of a place. You don't want to live in the kind of misery David describes. Rather, you want to be where David ends up. Notice how he concludes the psalm. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you upright, uh, righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. Or as Paul will go on to describe later, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Because both David and Paul recognize that having our sins uncovered, that they might then be covered, leaves us in a most blessed state. The state of happiness and peace and blessing that come with our confessing our sin to God and having God cover it through Christ. Again, why would we want to live in a way imagining God can't see us? Why do we not confess them? So that we can enjoy that blessed state in this life and in the life to come. The message of Psalm 32 is that God forgives sin. As Paul expands on this in Romans 4, he does that through Christ and he credits our faith. He turns our faith into righteousness, declares us to be fit for his presence. We now enter through the veil that tore when Christ was on the cross. We now enter into the glorious presence of God, and God looks at us as if we had not broken any one of the commandments in front of us. He looks at us as if we are entirely covered by the blood that the priests, our great priests, offered for us to cover that sin. He looks at us as if we were Jesus. And as we embrace that, we enjoy the blessedness of true and lasting happiness. What does God do with our sin? He covers it. He covers you in the righteousness of Christ. He no longer sees it. He sees you only as you are enveloped by 
the perfect righteousness of Christ. He brings honor and glory and praise to his name among, in among other ways by your rejoicing in what he's done. He covers your sin. You are forgiven. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for what Jesus has done. Thank you for the ways that it is applied to our lives by your Spirit. Lord, if there are any here living willfully and unrepentantly in sin, and who might have a, an outward smile but a, an inward frown, who might be living in the kind of misery that torturous existence David describes in Psalm 32, Lord, would you remind them today that you are a God of love and of mercy. And if they but uncover that sin, lay it before you, you will cover it for them. Lord, give to all of us the joy of our salvation. Lord, enable us to delight in that multifaceted forgiveness. Thank you for filling out that picture for us with just one more uh, word image. Thank you, Lord for covering our sin. Receive our thanks we offered in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen.